Hi, and welcome to Scope It Out, the official podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host today, Dr. Amber Luong from the McGovern Medical School of the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. Um, today, I've invited Dr. Ahmad Setagan, professor and rhinologist at the University of Cincinnati, to discuss this manuscript entitled Determinants of Physician Assessment of Chronic Rhinosinusitis Disease Control Using EPOS 2020 Criteria and the Importance of Incorporating Patient Perspectives of Disease Control. Uh, and that was published in November of this past year. So, Happy New Year. Um, I heard on the radio that uh, most of the country is dealing with some sort of weather condition. And as you can hear from my voice, I, I got a nice little cold. Um, so I hope you're not facing anything dramatic at, in your place this morning. No, thanks. Uh, everything's going great here. A um, little dreary weather-wise outside, a little rainy, but uh, overall doing well. And thanks for having me on, by the way. Yeah, no problem. Um, so this is a a great article. Typically, we kind of choose articles that are either in this current months, but I was going back and looking at when I was picking out the article and realized that this article hadn't been highlighted in November. But I, you know, I thought it was just a really important concept. I chose it because, as you can imagine, obviously, why you do this study in the first place, the concept of control in patients. Um, and, and its treatment implications are is so important to us otolaryngologists and rhinologists who are taking care of patients. Um, so that's why I, I really thought this was an important article that I wanted to hopefully give a, a deeper dive into. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Sure. Okay, Ahmad. So can you give me some background on this study as, as, we, as we go to think about it? And, and what did you want to evaluate from this particular study? Sure, absolutely. How much time do you have? We could go on for. <laughs> I, we, I could give you a two-hour background uh, description. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's important right off the bat to just sort of highlight the importance of the disease control concept. We talk about it all the time. I mean, in practice, how often do we actually say it, or do we even hear patients talk about control? But do we really know what that means? It's one mm -hmm. of those things where we kind of have this gestalt feeling of what it means, but what, what actually doesn't mean if we have to put it down on paper and then apply it in a, in a standardized way. So, you know, for, for those who are listening, you know, I think, again, we think about it, but what does control mean? And so usually I first start off by saying, you know, I think whenever we treat a disease, the, the ultimate outcome that we hope to achieve is cure. Right. But sometimes that's just not possible. So what do we do for chronic diseases that don't have a cure? Well, mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is achieve control. And what does that mean? You know, the best way that I've been able to put it into words is control is the degree to which the manifestations of a disease are within acceptable limits. So we can't make the manifestations necessarily go away or permanently go away. We really want to get them to a, an acceptable level. And that's one of the things that I've noticed increasingly as, you know, the longer that I've practiced. And you know, for those of us who have been practicing for a while, you, you start to see that, you know, your CRS patients, for example, may have some degree of symptomatology, but it's acceptable and they're happy and it's accept and, and it's overall acceptable to them. It's acceptable to you. And that's a positive outcome, you know. So, again, control is the degree to which manifestations of, of a disease are within acceptable limits. But what does it mean for CRS, because again, mm -hmm. you know, this whole line of investigation for us came about because we use this term so frequently. We use it, colleagues use it, patients use it, and we really wanted to take a systematic approach 
towards trying to define what disease control ultimately means to CRS. Yeah. Um, other, there have been a number of different definitions for CRS disease control, but none have really stuck all that well. And I, for me, part of that, part of the reason for that is because I don't really see any of them that have really studied each criterion in a, in a very systematic way. And that's sort of the way that we wanted to approach it. And, and historically, we have focused a lot on patients' perspectives, chronic rhinosinusitis disease control. And we wanted to sort of look at the other end of the spectrum in terms of the other stakeholders for which CRS disease control is important, and that's the physicians. And so this study really came about because we've studied the patient's perspective of CRS disease control for so long. We wanted to start more rigorously looking at physicians' perspectives of CRS disease control and doing it in a very diverse group, different perspectives, different backgrounds, different training, et cetera. So that's sort of the big picture reason why we did this study. So that segues Um, really nicely. Can you go into the study design for this particular study, since you're saying that you really wanted to focus on the physician's perspective? um, how, mm -hmm. How did you do this study? Sure. So, you know, the the objective, there are several objectives uh, for this study. The first was to get, kind of get a general sense of what specific manifestations of CRS were most associated with how we as physicians would rate or assess chronic rhinosinusitis control. The second objective and sort of related to that was trying to get a sense of whether the patient's global assessment of their CRS matters and how much does it matter relative to some of these more well-established manifestations, which, which I'll get into in a second. And, and the third aspect of this um, exercise, this study, was to try to get a sense of, well, how consistent are all these different rhinologists? Because I think an important aspect of trying to identify standardized criteria for some outcome, in this case, control, Mm-hmm. is trying to get a sense of how similar are we or, or how dissimilar are we. And I think the more similar we are, the easier it becomes for us as a field to kind of come together and say, yeah, you know, we do think alike and, and we this is very doable. So in terms of the first objective of looking at specific CRS disease manifestations that were associated with how these rhinologists, and there are 15 different rhinologists equally split between gender, geographic distribution, backgrounds, training, experience, et cetera. It's, it's sort of described in the paper. We took criteria that were used in EPOS guidelines for assessing CRS control. So these are the first uh, set of guidelines. Just to, to clarify, the EPOS stands for the European Position on... Rhinosinusitis uh, and nasal okay. polyps, yeah. Okay. And, and so in the 2012 version, uh, they put out some recommendations for criteria guidelines for assessing CRS control. First time in our field, it's generally well used. We did a systematic review on different uh, definitions of CRS control that have been put out in in the literature. And about half of those studies, maybe a plurality of those studies use the EPOS guidelines and the others use like 15 or 16 different definitions that are out there. Okay. And so we we use these as sort of the baseline manifestations. And so what does the EPOS guidelines, what, what manifestations do the EPOS guidelines use to assess CRS control? Well, severity of nasal obstruction, drainage, smell loss, bleep disturbance, and facial pain or pressure as the five symptoms. But they also incorporate two other criteria. One is the need for rescue medications, antibiotics, systemic antibiotics, or systemic corticosteroids in the last, used to be three months, but now in the last six months. 
Mm-hmm. And then also the findings of disease mucosa uh, on nasal endoscopy, and that could be edema, uh, mucopurulent drainage, polyps. And we wanted to get a sense of like of all these different criteria that were at least proposed in the in the EPOS guidelines now over ten years ago. Are there particularly dominant factors that are associated with how again we as rhinologists as healthcare providers assessing and taking care of these CRS patients? What really drives our assessment of CRS control? Uh, And the final factor that we included in this was a patient's own rating of their CRS control. Now, I will say we've done a lot of background work on this to to show that patients understand the concept of control. It very much aligns with how we view control as sort of the degree to which manifestations are within acceptable limits. They view control as the ultimate goal of treatment as well. So they understand it and it aligns with with our sense of disease control for CRS. And so that was the eighth and final factor that we also included. So just a quick question. Um, So did the patients go through each of those seven criteria to say whether or not they were controlled or just an overall gestalt of this particular patient was felt controlled? Exactly. So each patient that was included in the study, we essentially asked them to rate each of those uh, symptoms, the severity of their symptoms. We, of course, assess the need for systemic rescue medications and nasal endoscopy findings. But those patients were also asked, hey, tell us the overall degree of control that you have over your your chronic rhinosinusitis. And they rated it on a scale of uncontrolled, partly controlled, or controlled. Okay. And, And so those eight data points we gave for 200 patients, we gave those eight data points in an anonymized fashion to 15 different rhinologists and asked them based on these eight data points, would you please give us your own assessment of the patient's CRS control? Got it. And so they did that. And then uh, two weeks, I think actually one, one or two weeks later, uh-huh. we took that same data set. Again, it was anonymized, but we shuffled all the data around and we sent it back to them without the patient-reported control. So it was just the, those seven EPOS criteria. And now they did not know what that this was going to happen. They just knew that they were going to get two questionnaires. And so we looked at how they rated control based on those eight criteria in the first questionnaire. We looked at how they rated control in the second set with the second set of data with those seven bits of data. And then we compared the two to get a sense of what really drives these rhinologists' assessment of CRS control? So that's the basic design of, of the study. So I, I did note that um, you guys found that the patient reported um, CRS control, their, the control of their disease, uh, was a, a, an important and dominant factor in a rhinologist assessment of the patient's control of their disease. But one thing that's that's striking is that Often I find that patients get kind of used to their symptoms, so used to being miserable. And this is at least because I'm in the South, and so I see this more allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. Some of these patients come in and their polyps are growing out of their nose. Um, They've got all of this expansion of their sinuses, all their sinuses filled, and they'll tell you that they have very minimal symptoms. What are your thoughts on some of that apparent discrepancy? I think it's fascinating. Uh, that's, That's my big picture thought of it. And I think this is really an important question that we still really have to deal with and study and to try to get a sense of how do you reconcile objective findings, mm-hmm. uh, clinical signs with clinical symptoms. And, you know, I think 
you know, we each have our own separate and independent thoughts in terms of how we handle these patients. For me personally, in general, I put a lot of stock in how the patient feels uh, mm-hmm. and not so much in terms of the objective findings. Now, that's to a certain limit. And, and if you get to the point where we're talking about certainly dangerous clinical signs, sure. dangerous objective findings, you know, I've had AFRS patients too, and, or even AERD patients where their polyps are actually expanding into their skull base, you know, right. and worrisome, right? Yeah. Um, mucosils, you know, you, you worry about that. I think that's a little bit of a different story. But if you're talking about objective findings that aren't necessarily dangerous, I think that's that's an area of active investigation and something that we really as a field need to think about and, and um, really discuss. So I, I do think, and, and we are trying to figure out where this fits into how you assess patients and how you make decisions about treatment. Uh, right. But it's a great question. I don't have an answer to it. <laughs> I don't think we any of us do yeah. yet, um, but uh, and that's why you're investigating all of this. So, what are some of the other dominant, I guess, symptoms yeah. or criteria that that really drove how a rhinologist assess control? So, and actually, it, it it very much relates to the nasal endoscopy because what we found is in that first data set that these rhinologists received, where the patient-reported control was included as the data that they could see. Patient-reported control was very dominantly, actually, it was the most dominantly associated factor with how the rhinologist rated the patient's overall disease control. In addition to that, the two other uh, factors that were very dominantly associated were the severity and burden of nasal obstruction and nasal drainage or discharge. And what was interesting, though, is in the second data set where now you remove the patient-reported control and and the the rhinologists no longer have that, nasal obstruction and drainage were still very strongly associated with how the rhinologist assessed control. But now nasal endoscopy was a really important factor as well. And, and, you know, it was, it was actually very interesting to see that uh, because, again, for me, this question that you raised about how do you reconcile objective findings with symptoms has been something that I've struggled with and thought about uh, for a very long time. But I thought this was some first really novel insight into potentially where the role of nasal endoscopy lies. And, and it may be that the nasal endoscopy very much serves as like the secondary confirmation of what those symptoms represent for the patient. Uh-huh. So in the first data set, we have patient reported control as sort of that frame of reference to judge overall severities of, of symptoms. Uh, but when you don't have that frame of reference with respect to how the patient feels, the rhinologist needs another frame of reference. And that frame of reference may be the nasal endoscopy findings. So I, I think, you know, that I thought that was a very interesting finding overall with respect to nasal endoscopy and, and sort of where it may fit into the judgment and assessment of, of control. Well, so you bring up a really good point because um, so you, as you sort of alluded to, you've been really thinking about this for a long time and have been involved in a number of different studies and publications looking at this definition of control for us. One manuscript that just recently got published was, I believe, entitled The Consensus Criteria for CRS Disease Control, an International Delphi Study. And if I remember that correctly, I haven't read that paper in detail, but I I think I understand that nasal endoscopy did not turn out, or where where did the role of nasal endoscopy end up falling? It it did not reach consensus as an essential criterion for assessing CRS disease control. 
Okay. But it sort of fell into this category that we refer to as near consensus criteria. And I think, you know, for for us, we see sort of the the near consensus items as as the areas that need future investigate additional investigation. So it was close, but it. didn't quite meet consensus criteria. And there's reasons for that. And I think those reasons really need to be investigated and and we need to determine if you know, that can be those discrepancies in opinion can be reconciled. Well, another um, factor um, that you sort of that seems to be a little bit in this gray area is the sense of smell. I yeah. know that sense of smell was listed on the EPOS criteria and one of those that helped kind of guide, you know, whether we define something as uncontrolled, partly controlled or controlled. But I think it seemed like smell was not a dominant factor in your study. Is that fair to say? Do I have that? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's again, that's another area where I think more work needs to be done to sort of flesh out the importance of smell loss and how do you assess it in a way that it can contribute to CRS disease control assessment. I will say that we have actually found it to be true both for how patients in general, in terms of the determinants of patients' own assessment of their own CRS control, as well as for physicians which is and, and rhinologists, sure. which we did in this study, it, it is a minor determinant. And so we've seen this now consistently both in sort of the two big stakeholders for the CRS disease control concept, uh, which I think is really interesting. And I think there are potential explanations for that. And, and interestingly enough, for patients, this was true both in patients with and without nasal polyps as well. You know, we tend to think about smell loss more yeah. in our polyp patients. But in, in this study, and I think that was published in uh, Laryngoscope about three or four years ago, looking specifically at the importance of smell loss in, in patients' perspectives of CRS control. Well, so what you're saying is that at least from what you found, or in, in, with not just this study, but other studies, sense of smell is not a huge driving factor when assessing patients' assessment of control for their own disease as well mm-hmm. as the rhinologist. But yet in the most recent Euphoria paper, where that's a group of experts, a multidisciplinary experts looking at the definition of control, ended up including a sense of smell as a, an important factor. So I guess what your point is, is that there still needs to be done. We, we feel like it should be an important factor but yet some of these studies haven't really borne that right. out. And, you know, I think I, my personal feeling is that this is an evolving concept, right? And and at the end of the day, you know, I think when we, if we want to develop criteria or guidelines for, for CRS control, what we really want to do is develop those criteria in a way that's very evidence-based. And, you know, there's real, there's rationale behind behind those each of those items and criteria that we include in our guidelines. Now, in, in the consensus study that we did, the, the, the Delphi study, um, smell loss actually was one of the near consensus items. So there okay. does tend to be a, you know, th- it does tend to be something that in general, a lot, a lot of us rhinologists feel is important. It didn't quite reach that level of significance or that level of consensus where we could say, Yes, it meets clear consensus as an essential criterion. But again, we need to have reasons for why we include certain criteria in, in guidelines. And I think it's, it is an evolving concept currently. And I, think, I do think there are a lot of providers out there, rhinologists out there, who feel that it is an important criteria for control. But I think it's, it's something that needs to be studied further. Yeah. 
So I think our conversation was very interesting in the fact that it highlighted a lot of areas that still need some research. But what would you say would be the take-home message? Do we have a way as a rhinologist to determine whether or not a patient or a consistent way to say if a patient is controlled or not controlled and because of all the treatment implications, right? So if they're controlled, sure. we won't change our treatment. They they stay on what whatever they're on. Um, if we decide that it's uncontrolled, then maybe we need to escalate to some of these newer therapeutics that are being offered. So what what would you say is your current take-home message for our clinicians? I think it is an evolving concept. I think there aren't clear guidelines or definitions yet, but I think we're working towards it. And I think that's the important part here is that we are studying criteria for CR, for assessing CRS disease control so that we can have standardized guidelines that we can use, one, to communicate with one another and describe our patients, but also to directly inform treatment options. For now, though, I think, you know, what we do have information about is what are the most dominant drivers, both for patients, but as well as for rhinologists. Like, I, you know, these were expert rhinologists who were participating in the study. I was not one of them, but these were expert rhinologists from all over. And, and what we know is at least what overlaps with patients and rhinologists is the severity of nasal symptoms of obstruction and drainage and discharge. These are very important symptoms to include and to really think about in your overall assessment of CRS control for patients. The patient's overall and sort of general global measure of their own CRS control, I think, is an important factor. I mean, I think we do this already, you know, and, mm -hmm. and this study in, in a lot of ways just kind of shows it in a scientific way. But we, when we are assessing our own patients, again, it's just important to understand and to really think about how does a patient globally think about their CRS control? Because there are patients who have severe symptoms, but they may say, you know, you know it's acceptable, you know, and, and right. I can live with this, you know. And I think it's important to get that global impression as well from patients. And then I think the role of nasal endoscopy, what does it, I think it raises a lot of questions, maybe raises more questions than, than this study answers. But, you know, do we use it? Are we using it? Are these experts using it as a frame of reference with which to judge symptoms that, that patients have? So again, I think those are concepts to take away from this. And the other thing that we didn't actually talk about is there was actual remarkably consistent responses from all of our rhinologists. Oh, so there's okay. a lot of agreement. So even though they were filling these out totally independently, confidentially, no one was talking to anyone, no one knew who was participating in the study, their, their responses in, in terms of how they assess these patients' control was remarkably consistent. There's a high degree of agreement. So I do think, one, we're doing, as a field, we're doing good work to sort of establish what criteria are the most important. And I do think at the end of the day, we can come together and sort of develop guidelines that we all agree on because there already is quite a high degree of agreement between, you know, rhinologists from all different backgrounds already. That makes a lot of sense. So well, before I let you go, just going back to a point that you made earlier, that it's really important to get an idea of what the patient thinks is, is whether their CRS is controlled. You sort of alluded to earlier in the conversation that these patients had a really good concept of what that means. Do you feel like, you know, in our patients, do we need to give them that sort of context of like what it means to be controlled? Or do you feel like or, or were you saying that patients already had this inherently going into it, what, what it meant to be controlled? They, they inherently, this is inherently sort of how they interpret the concept of control, which is why I think it's fair 
to ask patients directly, well, how controlled is your, is your chronic rhinosinusitis? They understand it. It's the same way with us. You know, we okay. we're able to put it into words because we've been thinking about it for so long and, and we talk about it and, you know, um, but it, for me, as someone who's been studying this for like 10 years, it took me like five years to put it into words as like acceptability. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, but patients aren't sitting around thinking about disease control. So they, it's hard for them to necessarily put it into words, but when you sort of, and we did a qualitative study on this where we interviewed patients, when you actually put those concepts and themes behind what they say together, I mean, this is essentially what it comes down to for them. Some of them actually will tell you it's about acceptability. So I think inherently they understand the concept of control and you can directly ask your patients about it. And does it depend on their education level? Do you think, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't break it down to the degree of, you know, high school, college, or, you know, uh, neither. So it's a, it's a good point. And I think that's worth studying in the future as well, but we, we haven't looked at that. So I okay. can't comment on it. Interesting. All right, Ahmad, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. That was an amazing uh, a book of work, really, um, that culminated in this most recent paper. And, and uh, for those of you who are interested in delving in further, Dr. Setagat has done, uh, uh, again, we alluded to this paper on the Delphi study, uh, further investigating this concept. So thank you. Uh, appreciate your time and Happy New Year. Thanks for having me on, Amber. Happy New Year to you, too. 